It came to pass at that time, Judah, this is after Joseph is now in Egypt in uh, slavery, serving in Potiphar's house. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter, a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and he, she called his name Anan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chesbib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went to his, into his brother's wife, they emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. This is the introduction to us of Judah and his sons. It's a heavy story to start with right off the bat. I mean, this is, this is pretty heavy. Judah is the contrast to Joseph in the next chapter. And here's Judah. He takes a wife from the Canaanite women. We don't even know her name. It's the daughter of a certain Canaanite, Shua. Shua's daughter. So she doesn't get a name. Now remember, Esau took wives from Canaanites, and it didn't please the family. And I don't know where these guys can get their wives anyways, but evidently a Canaanite wife was not the pool of women to be pulling your wives from for the patriarchs. And so he gets this woman, and they have the children, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And these are going to be the three that would be the descendants of Judah by which this great nation is going to come, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel, 12 sons, and it goes like that. And the flow chart goes. Well, when you think about Judah, no one gets away with anything. And we've seen in the book of Genesis that the sins of parents do have an effect on their children. We see that. We see in this book of Genesis that no one gets away with anything. And it's not so much that there's a curse passed upon you. There's just things that go a certain way. Your standards in the home will affect your children somewhere down the road, favorably or disfavorably. Now, of course, adult children make their own decisions. No one's denying that. But the more you make good decisions in your home, the more you're setting them up that they will make good decisions. And the more you prepare them to walk with the Lord, the, the better the chances are they'll be fruitful in walking with the Lord. You can't make them walk with the Lord, but you can set them up for, to be fruitful and successful with the Lord. And you can give them examples of the Lord. And of course, what we do means much more than what we say in our household, raising children when they're younger. And even when we're older, those responsibilities don't change. Adult children look up to their parents, even as they're adults. And we see so often when older parents don't do well, it will affect the adult children. And that's worth noting. Well, in Judah's case, he's got the Canaanite wife, who's a no-name. And then he has these three children. And it's pretty heavy to think that the firstborn son was wicked in the sight of the Lord and was struck down by the Lord. Er, you know, in 8 billion people on the planet, does God really care about everybody and know about everybody? Absolutamente. Absolutely. Of course he does. God is all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful. So there's nothing going on, and that's why David said in Psalm 139, try me and search me and see if there be any evil way in me. God knows us better than we know ourselves. So it's not like he knows you a little less than he knows me 
or knows me a little less than he knows you. God is perfect and all-knowing. It's his universe. He's the potter, we're the clay. And every one of us, per se, is a crackpot, if you will, and he knows everything about us, everything more so than we know. He knows what really happened in our yesterday. He knows what really happened today, and he knows what's going to happen tomorrow, and he knows what's processing our mind and where our hearts are at and what's going on in our lives. And he struck this guy down. God deals with the wicked. And for Judah, I can't imagine the sorrow of losing the son, but to lose a son who was wicked. Like it's one thing to lose a son like Greg Laurie lost his son in a car accident, or John Corson lost his daughter in a car accident, or Brian Jameson lost his daughter to cancer. Christina Bowers, you know, died of cancer. And Celeste Bowers, her mom, just wrote a book. And in sixth grade, she passed away. I did her memorial. Like, it's hard enough to lose a child, but to lose a child because they're wicked. Now, we see this with Eli, the priest. Samuel, the prophet, said that those sons would be struck down, and they were. But it's just, it's unique, and it's sobering, and we just go, whoa, to be avoided. And it reminds us that we want to be diligent as parents to hold our children accountable and help them when they're an age, when they're younger, and we can, to their benefit, look out for them and not establish a policy of appeasement for sin and compromise that can hurt them later on down the road when they're adults. Because, again, if they make bad decisions as adults, let it be because they're adults making bad decisions, not because we set them up for that. But he was wicked, and God struck him down. And that's just, I can't even comprehend what that would feel like. So then Onan is the son. Now, we know in the law of God that the one son is, the one brother is to raise up an heir for the brother. So the name perpetuates and the inheritance goes on in the family. This is very clear. 500 years later with the nation of Israel, this cultural disposition to do right by your brother. And Onan doesn't do it. And he refuses to have the child with the woman. He's, he's willing to have sex with her, but not have the child that is the purpose of it to benefit another, his brother's name, and God strikes him down dead. So God knows our heart, and this is all about, in his case, it's about what's in it for him as opposed to looking out for someone else or others, and so he's struck down dead. So again, you think of Judah like he, he betrayed his brother Joseph, set the price to sell him into slavery, and as God strikes down the first son and then the second son, you just wonder if his mind is like, I brought all this upon myself. This is my own doing. Why did I betray my brother Joseph? Because, you know, when the evil do evil things and then they reap from it, they start to think about, like, is this because of this? I'll give you a really good example. I remember when I was in, like, seventh, eighth grade, really getting into surfing and hanging out with my good friend David Barr. I used to think it was fun to try and steal bikes. What a ridiculous thing to do. But I thought, like, can I get away with this? And there was, we'd meet up on the hill in Carlsbad, by Carlsbad High, and about 4 or 3 in the morning to go surfing, and I'd just be scouting and like, steal someone's bike. You know, it was, like, it was like just some stupid thing that stupid people do. And I had a brand new surfboard I really liked. It was a Gordon Smith, a GNS Swallowtail, single fin, 70s, green and yellow. Best board I ever had up to that time. And I used to keep it at little Michael's mom's house in the corner of, right there by Tamarack. And we, st- I stole this bike, and we ditched the bike, and we just thought it was really funny. Well, David thought it was funny. He wasn't the guy that had the consequence coming upon him for these things. So I steal a bike, and then the next day my board gets stolen. 
And I'll tell you, little naughty Joy Brand that still went to catechism at that time, I sat in bed thinking, hmm, now I might not be the sharpest tack in the room, right? But I stole the bike Saturday, and someone stole my surfboard Sunday, and I just wonder if those things are connected, right? And that's what happens when you do stuff like that. You, you, begin, you just go like, well, I did this over here, and, but then that came back my way. And, you know, surfers just go like, dude, karma, bro. Or they're like, oh, bro, bad juju. Like, you know, there's different things that people say, oh, bro, man, what you sow, you reap. You know, like there's just, or this one, hey, dude, what goes around comes around. Right, like these are these. This is what the world says, but there's an element of truth there, and I just can't help but think of Judah, how s- sad he would be in the heartache of of burying two sons, and not he'd have to he'd have to think back to what he did to Joseph. I mean, you could not not do that. So, it, it is what it is. Verse eleven. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah has grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So that is the wife, the widow. He's put her away and just says, just wait your time. And then the third son will be your husband and it'll all be good. Verse 12. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to the sheep shears at Timnah, and he and his friend Hirah the Dulamite. There he is again. He's the guy back there in verse 1. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garment, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot or a prostitute because she covered her face. And then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you or have sexual relationship with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may uh, have sexual relationship with me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? And then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. And then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on her garment of widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. And then he asked them into the place, saying, Where's the harlot who is openly by the roadside? And they said, There's no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men in place said, There's, there's no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Hmm. Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. It came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she was with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose they are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So Judah acknowledged him and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her or had sexual intimacy with her again. So this is the second part of this story where Judah's wife dies. And so now the son Shelah has lost his mom. And he's of age, but there's no way that Judah's going to give him to Ur's wife, Tamar, 
he's not going to do it. So he's not upholding his end of the bargain. So he said he made a commitment to Tamar. And you think Tamar, like she's got to go live like a widow and just lay low for year after year after year. Her whole life's put on hold. And it's like, it's been a tough, tough lot for her. And then now she knows that the youngest son is of age of a man, and that should be her husband. But her father-in-law is not honoring his word. Judah's got all kinds of problems in his life. And here we see he doesn't, he doesn't keep his word, doesn't honor his word. And so she's like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've got a plan. And desperate people come up with desperate plans. And you got to give Tamar credit. This is a pretty good plan. She, she got him. She tricked him. And she got him to have sexual relationship with her without even knowing it was her. And when she said, this is what you give me as a pledge, your signet, your cord, and your staff that's in your hand, which she said in verse 18, she had this stuff to embarrass him, but she didn't. And even Judah said when they couldn't find the woman to the Dulamite, hey, lest we be embarrassed, because this is embarrassing, this like embarrassing thing that I was involved with a prostitute, and she's got my credit card, my ID, she got the electronic key to my car, like, you know, a modern example is, man, this girl, who I'm in, I'm in big trouble here, so let's just kind of pretend this never happened, go our way, and let her keep, let her keep the car, let her keep the credit card, let her keep that, and we'll just hope this never gets out in public, or in social media, or public information. Essentially, that's what he says, but it's crazy, isn't it, that when he finds out that Tamar's pregnant, he blows a gasket and says, let's burn her alive. Like, like, let's burn her alive? Like, really? Like, that's, I mean, even for harsh people, that's pretty harsh. Let's burn her alive? I mean, the same guy that betrayed Joseph for 20 shekels of silver, who has had two sons struck down for being wicked by the Lord, he's still on his high horse as judge and jury of Tamar. You know, you'd think you'd be humble enough to be like, well, you know, that's a bad look for her, and I've got things to be embarrassed about. You know, and the measure you judge will be judged to you, right? So it's like, it's a really bad look, but let's just think about what my life is. I betrayed Joseph. My dad still doesn't even know it, right? Because Jacob didn't know even at this time. Judah's whole life is a lie. He's living a lie. They deceived Jacob into thinking Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And all during this time, Judah has this kid, he's struck down, he's wicked. This kid, he's struck down because he won't fulfill the vow. And then Judah doesn't keep his vow on the third child, Shelah, to give to Tamar. And you'd think when he finds out that Tamar's pregnant, you think like, well, you know what? It's hard to blame her. You know, I didn't keep my word. I didn't give her my third son. But, you know, people don't think like that, do they? We, we tend to be very harsh, and we tend to be harshest on the things that we are guilty of. So he has a sexual relationship with a harlot. They didn't even know where she went, where she came from. She's got all of his ID, his social security number, if you will. He's got the signet ring. She's got him, man. She hasn't embarrassed him publicly whoever this harlot is. So he's like, maybe I got away with it, right? Because it's been less than a year, right? He got her pregnant, and this pregnancy is with the child from him. So it's been a few months, like, hey, hey, man, nothing ever popped up anywhere. I think we got away with this. And then suddenly, Tamar's pregnant, what? And it's crazy that he would use this kind of harsh measures against her. But give Tamar credit. She really is the hero in this chapter, too, by the way, in case you haven't figured it out. Tamar's like a victim and a hero. And she just... 
She's like, well, you know, before you bring me the steak, this is who the dad is. The keys to the car, social security card, you know, the, the master card, your, the driver's license or the smart ID, whatever it is, you know, it's, there it is. Now I'll give Judah credit. He, he just changes his whole tune. He just flips the switch and he says, you are more righteous. She has been more righteous than I. Some people never flip the switch. Some people never, ever acknowledge their guilt. You see people put away for life at Pelican Bay or something for murder, for violent rape and these things, and it's still to the end someone else's fault. There are people that taunt their victims in a courtroom, right? We see this. Some people never, ever, ever admit that they stole the money, that they broke dad's heart or their wife's heart or their husband's heart. Some people never, ever can say, it's my fault, I was unfaithful. They always got to say, if they had done this and done that, I wouldn't have done this. Some people never come to the place where they just go, you know what? She's more righteous than I. And this is the beginning of a new beginning for Judah. Because after this point, he's still living a lie before his father, like his other brothers, the other 10 brothers, or nine, because it's him plus nine. Joseph's there, and Benjamin's not a part of the lie. Judas, there's, there's no more bad Judah. This is the low point. The low point of Judah is burn her at the stake. But then once he says that she's more righteous than I, the redeemed Judah begins to come about. And he actually becomes a hero later on in the, when we get toward chapter 44, 45, 46, which is really encouraging. You know, the only time I ever changed my phone number was because I couldn't take my sister's crazy phone messages anymore. I just couldn't take them. These, these raging lunatic phone messages, I could not take them anymore. It's the only time I ever changed a number is my sister. And three years ago at Mother's Day, I told my sister, the next step for you, and you know the story, is you go to rehab and you finish it. And it'd be court-appointed rehab. And she did. She actually eventually did, and she finished it, did the one-year graduation. She's still living in a halfway house, sober for two and a half years. But there was a point where she hit the bottom, and the storyline switched, and she became a different person. And three months of sobriety, she was a certain way, 100 days. And then six months of sobriety, a certain way. Halfway through the crash program, as it's called, it's an acronym crash. And then halfway through the program, court appointed, a year sober, amazing, the graduation, wow. And then two years. And then DUI school for a year and a quarter to get her license restored. Criminal charges expunged, like I said recently, where the felonies were dropped to misdemeanors and completely expunged just 10 days ago. Her license fully restored. This is last week. Yesterday was a very emotional day because I picked her up at the train station and drove her here to this parking lot because we're giving her the car, my dad's car, that I've used to serve my dad for the last three years. It's a Toyota route, right? It's just a gift that keeps on giving. You know, <laughs> you got you to shoot those cars and put them to rest, right? They, they just, those Toyota routes go forever. It became her car. It had been my dad's, mine, Timmy's when he went to college, back to me, serving my dad. And yesterday we were right here, and I said, like a teenager, okay, now drive around the parking lot, just like your teenage kids, right? Drive around the parking lot. 
Hey, slow down, slow down. Look out for the lamppost. Listen, I've hit that lamppost. Be aware of those lampposts, okay? <laughs> Can I get a witness? Those lampposts are sneaky. You got to watch them. And then, okay, now pull in right. Slow down, slow down. I sound like a dad. Slow down, pulling in. Follow me. I got the church van. It's my new car again. The church van is always the safety net vehicle for Pastor Joey. That's another gift that just keeps on giving. I've lost track of mileage on that van. So it was just so joyful. But before we ever got to that joyful day where she then got the title at AAA later on and then drove home last night, before we got to that day, there had to be a day where you said, she is more righteous than I. Where we quit saying, burn everybody at the stake, and we just say, she is more righteous than I. There has to be the place where we no longer blame anybody for anything else, and we accept responsibility for who we are, what we've done, how it's affected people. We're broken by it, and we're never the same. And that is the beginning of restoration. And when the prophet Joel said that God can restore the years that the locust ate, even the swarming locust, it can only happen when there's total brokenness. So whether it's the thief on the cross saying, remember me today in your kingdom, or Judah saying, looking at his staff and signet ring, the gig's up. You know, there's just nothing. You just got to appreciate it that he accepted it and confessed it. And that was really the beginning of his healing to become more the man he's meant to be than he ever was before that moment. And as embarrassing and as humiliating as that moment was for Judah, that moment is the beginning of the good Judah, a different Judah, the Judah by which the kings really will come, including David, Hezekiah, Josiah, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good Judah. And sometimes it's a lesson to us that we can't give up on people. We can't give up on Judah. Just because he betrayed Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. Just because his sons were wicked twice and struck down by the Lord. And just because he didn't keep his vow of Tamar. There's people that live lives like Judah where it's a bad trail everywhere they go. But there's hope. And love hopes all things and bears all things and believes all things. And you just never know when that person might flip and just say, you know what? She is more righteous than I. It's that breaking point. So if you got people like that in your life, like Judah, the spirit of Judah, if you will, don't lose heart. My sisters are such an encouragement to so many people. But she's not the only person like that. There's lots of people like that. Some of you are like that. But there's a breaking point where we just go, you know what? All things are naked and open and bare before him who much we give account. So, yeah, let's go forward. And Judah did. He never had relationship with her again. And she had the twins, which closes out the chapter. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, verse 27, the twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread, bound it to his hand, saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore, his name is called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out that had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. And so you see, Tamar enters the genealogy line of the Lord Jesus Christ from this story, which just proves our God is a God of redemption. She's in the genealogy line. Isn't that awesome? Like Rahab. I mean, it's amazing, the genealogy line. She makes, she makes it. So it's really cool and 
I think everyone just went home, and she went home with twins. Judah went his way. The Dulamite was like, oh, that was random. He went his way, and life goes on, right? And by the way, there's nothing good about the Dulamite either. Nothing good ever happened in Judah's life hanging out with the Dulamite. It's worth noting. Chapter 39, now we move on to Joseph. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all he did prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. This is awesome. I mean, Joseph, wow, Judah's got sons being struck down. The brothers are living a lie. And here's Joseph in Egypt thriving. Now, we know later on in Genesis that his brothers say to each other, didn't we ignore him when he pleaded and cried for mercy? But he was the faithful senior in high school at 17, serving his father. And here we're told he's a man. It says in verse 2, that the Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man. And certainly we can say and propose here tonight that the faithful senior in high school is likely to be the successful adult in life. And you just add time. Solomon said, seek the Lord in your youth before the days grow old and evil and you take no pleasure in them. And we know that character counts and it certainly counts in the high school years in the formative years, and good decisions bear good fruit. Thinking of Danny Foster, Pastor Jeremy's son, and I mentioned him Saturday as well, just so proud of Danny Foster. What an amazing kid. When we started this church 15 years ago, Danny Foster was just a kid running around the children's ministry. Always a sweet kid, always a sweet spirit, always respectful. Jeremy and Cheryl would tell you he wasn't the perfect kid, but he was that kid. Always a neat kid and thinking of others, He built up others in all the ministries he was involved in with this church, third through fifth grade, the middle school, and the high school. As a high schooler and a senior, he gave back so much to our young people in our youth group. He was always a spiritual leader, loving and serving and blessing. In May, he'll be graduating from Boise State, a man. And if you don't know, he's going to the Navy. He's going to be teaching in nuclear physics to people that work with nuclear stuff in the Navy. That's incredible. Like, that is so inspiring to me. Little Danny Foster is joining the Navy. He's going to tell people who drive nuclear submarines with nuclear weapons how they work, both the sub and the weapon, stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's up there stuff. But I think about Danny because there was a time he was that teenager on the soccer team a spiritual leader in a league that's one of the best soccer leagues in the country, Orange Coast League Soccer, with Godinez, Estancia. These schools were ranked top, top 10, top, top 50 in the nation. And Calvary had had a competitive soccer team against these schools that were insane. And they lost most of their games in league against 
elite athletes, but they were competitive and close. And Danny Foster, I went to so many of his games and watched how he carried himself, how he treated his, his teammates, how they treated the other schools when they'd pray with them afterwards, if the schools were willing to let the students pray with them. It was awesome. I think of my own son, Luke, just right about on the same timeline as Danny Foster. But I think about when Luke played high school football and he was never a captain, but I was always taking pictures, and many of you were at those games that Luke played football at, and he was a star athlete. He was an elite athlete. But what made him so special was how he loved and served his teammates. And I would take pictures, and I have so many pictures where, and pictures in my mind, not in my camera, where he would be comforting players who were having a rough game. You'd see him over here with an arm around this guy who threw his helmet down at the coach and had a big fit. It'd be Luke praying with them, encouraging him, and stirring him up and saying, it's going to be okay. I'll never forget the game when we could have won the league title against Costa Mesa. Luke had gotten the concussed in the Laguna game the week before with the four touchdowns, game of a lifetime, and he couldn't play. And when Braden Stack turned the ball over three times, he put the ball on the carpet as a running back. He was just so devastated, and Luke was the other tailback, but he wasn't playing. And there was Luke with Braden Stack praying for him, encouraging him, and building him up. That's what he was doing. And then to think of where my Luke's at right now in the Hyundai Corporation with idea of the year for the entire corporation in America because of his ability to discern things and implement things. I think of his, his character and how he loves people and serves people and loves the Lord. I think of Danny Foster, how he loves people and loves the Lord and serves the Lord. I think of Luke graduating Grand Canyon a year ago and seeing my son up there on the dean's list. I think of the honor society. I think of... Uh, when Luke was the guy as a senior where he, they, the freshmen come in and they serve him. What's that called, Tammy, when they get the, the new kids and they serve them, the seniors serve them and take them through the ropes for a year? Well, yeah, crew. Link crew. He did the link crew. I said, put on your resume. There's not a lot of seniors who set aside their senior year to serve a freshman for the entire year. But this is how you get Joseph. That's how you get the Danny Fosters and the Luke Barans and, and your kids that you want them to be in this type of pattern. That's how it works. If you're walking strong with the Lord at 17, there's a really good chance you'll be walking strong with the Lord at 22. And you're as a woman or a man. And that's what you see here. And that's why it's so important that all that we do with our youth, the camps that we've done, we're, we're trying to invest even the kids down here right now, we put them in the right way and we, we direct them in the way and you prioritize church and church is important and they understand church is important. We go to church on Tuesday night. It's what we do. And this is our peer group that we, we're part of. And then when they, they get older and they, they, they make those convictions of their own, they have to make in a public place because sooner or later we all go to public high school, right? Like you can homeschool, you can send them to Calvary, whatever. But sooner or later you go to work at Starbucks. And homeschool mom can't help you, and neither can a Christian school teacher, Mr. Foster. you gotta, you got to figure it out. Like Daniel being shipped off to Babylon, we'll find out what you're made of when you get to Babylon. And when you purpose in your heart not to defile yourself with the king's delicacies like Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, that just didn't happen. That happened before then, and it carried into that. And this is who Joseph is. Joseph was a faithful teenager, and he was distinct. 
from those who were not. He had a higher bar. He didn't need the teacher or professor or anyone else setting his standards. His moral compass was his faith in God and his understanding of God that he received from his grandfather Abraham, excuse me, his great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, and his father Jacob. And it served him well. And he prospered. You don't just wake up a man of God or a woman of God. You've been molded and shaped to be that woman and to be that man. And those good decisions, the sooner they start, the more they bear good fruit. Like my sister driving around in San Diego right now in Pops Rav. The sooner you start the good decisions, you finish rehab, the sooner you can be driving. You finish DUI school, the sooner you can be driving. You drive good for six months, then you can get insured by an automobile club instead of the special license that you get to be insured by when you've had DUIs, right? Good decisions. It's always the right time. Joseph is fruitful, he's prospering, and he's a blessing. And this is ultimately what we want our children to be and what we want to be. He is a blessing. He is such a blessing, and he's so faithful that Potiphar's like, wherever this guy got, I got the deal of the year on draft day when I bought him at the slave trade. This, we choose that guy, the Hebrew kid, whatever Hebrew meant to them at that time, right? I'll take this guy. And he's, he so exceeded expectation that this guy came in, the low guy on the totem pole, he's a captain in Pharaoh's guard, he's got lots of people, this guy goes right up the corporate ladder in the company, and he's running the show before you know it, and he's not just running the show, Potiphar's not looking over his back, like, hey, can I trust this kid, whatever, he's like, you're in charge of everything, he, he didn't even, he didn't give an, he didn't even, count, he didn't check the books, he didn't even check the books, the checkbook, Joseph is in charge of the checkbook, he does the online banking, does it all, all of it. He's faithful in every element. So faithful that Potiphar doesn't worry about anything. He trusts him with everything. The staff relations, the staff meetings. Potiphar's got it just rolling, and it's going great. And he, there's a good meal every night at 6 p.m. on Potiphar's table. And Joseph is faithful. We want to be that woman. We want to be that man. That when we come to fruition of our faith and who we're meant to be, we're blessing upon blessing upon blessing. We walk into work. The blessings drop. We walk into church. We bring the blessings. We go to the family gathering. We bring the blessings. We're in a difficult situation. We bring the blessings because Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We bring the spirit into the situations. And before we move on from this particular part, I'll just say this. It says in Colossians that we do whatever we do in Christ. We do it as unto the Lord, not unto men knowing that we will receive our reward from our Father in heaven. And I really believe Joseph is an example of that in Potiphar's house. He could have been cursing his brothers. He could have been blaming his brothers. I didn't get into the college of my choice. My college of first choice was, you know, Hebron U and sent him down here at, you know, Cairo State College. Like, you know, you can always make, you can blame anything and everything if you want to be a victim. But if you want to rise up and be fruitful, you just say, all right, Lord, this came through the filter of your hands and you're bigger than you see Cal State or anything else. And I'm going to be fruitful, or as we said Saturday night, bloom where you planted. Bloom and grow. And that's exactly what Joseph did, and he's a blessing. But of course, people that are a blessing, we get tested on our character. We get tested on our faith, and Joseph does too. So we pick it up in verse 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. He has committed all that is in my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See the contrast right there with Judah and his sons? What a contrast. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Verse 10. So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he ran outside. And so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he's brought us brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out. They left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. And so it happens I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. And then Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him into prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And there he was, Joseph, in the prison. You know, some, sometimes the, the breaks just don't go your way, right? Like, it'd be so easy, like, wow, like, it just seems like Joseph is doing all the right things. He has the right convictions, the right character, and he's, he's just going through it. The Bible tells us to flee youthful lust, and Joseph does. We also know from within this text that he had his own moral compass based upon God's word and just respect of others between right and wrong. And as we said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? His standard is much higher. Now, again, consider Judah going into the harlot, who's actually Tamar, who he didn't keep his word to. What a contrast. We chart our courses, and we sow, and we reap what we're sowing. And it perpetuates in our life, present tense, future tense, and it does have an impact and effect on those that come after us and those that are with us. So our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, we can sow the blessings and perpetuate them, or we can sow compromises and sin and wickedness and see things train wrecked, if you will. What Joseph is doing here is certainly, it's so high and honorable, it's amazing He's respecting his boss, Potiphar. He's respecting the woman, Potiphar's wife, who's trying to get him to commit adultery with her. He's doing her a favor by not consenting. Like, he's actually doing her a favor. Like, you do not want to commit adultery against your husband. He's trying to restrain her from something that's going to be extremely harmful to her and her soul and her person, her inner woman. He's trying to help her not do the wrong thing. He's purposed not to do the wrong thing, and he's trying to respect his boss and look out for his interest he's such a a hero joseph is just a total hero of the bible but his faith is being tested as is his character and god will test our character and he'll test our faith and i i said this Saturday night and i say it again the firmer our faith is and the stronger our convictions are right and wrong that we don't capitulate or compromise those things it's in our it's in our best interest 
There are lines we don't want to cross. There are places we don't want to go. And it's in our best interest not to. Because once you cross certain things, it's hard to retract those things. And we know that from our own failures and observing other people's failures. My sister, years ago, was close to being sober. She was sober for over 100 days. She had good traction in rehab. And then she made the mistake of smoking pot one time with a friend of hers from high school that she used to smoke pot with in the past. That smoking pot was the crossing of the line that got her back into the alcohol, back into the hard drugs, and back into the heavy meds, the narcotic meds. And that was where she really took the downturn to being on the street, living by, behind dumpsters in different places, and pushing the grocery cart around as someone that looked completely out of their mind. But she just told me this last week, we were driving around, that she got close that one time, and then just that one slip up, she crossed that line. And it set her back for years. So when she tells you she has no, there's no nothing, this or that ever, or she's dead, she means it, and it's probably true. There's just certain lines you don't ever want to cross. And who would want to cross this line? This is a very, man, Joseph passed this test. And then to be falsely accused of, a, of attempted rape. That's something that we miss in this whole thing if you're not paying attention. But he is false. It's one thing to be accused of attempted rape and to rightfully be accused of attempted rape. But it's quite another to be falsely accused of attempted rape. To have that stigma on your name and your reputation. You're working so hard for Pharaoh. You loved your boss. You served your boss. You honored your boss. And you, you guarded your boss by not giving in to the solicitation of his wife. Who's probably very good looking because he's an important, powerful person. You're above reproach, and you come to prison, and people look at you like, dude, that's the dude that tried to rape Potiphar's wife. Like, even the rest of his life, when he's in Pharaoh's court, and he's the boss, some might say, hey, well, you know, I heard he tried to rape Potiphar's wife. Well, that's not true. Of course he didn't try. How do you think he got here? Well, we don't know. That's what I heard. They still talk about it down in the prison. See what I'm saying? Like, you, some of you have been falsely accused of different things, and it hurts. When you're accused of lying at work and you didn't lie at work, that hurts. When you're accused of doing something wrong in a dispute and it's not true, that hurts. False accusations, even the slightest ones, they sting because there's enough we can be properly accused of that that's tough enough, but to be wrongly accused is, is brutal. And Joseph was wrongly and falsely accused. And yet, he doesn't blame his brothers. There's no record of him blaming Potiphar or Potiphar's wife. We just read, he gets on with life. And we close tonight with verse 21. But the Lord, isn't that great? Oh my goodness. But the Lord. And that's what it is for all of us. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. It's repeat and reload from Potiphar's house. Now, if you're charting your career, being the right-hand man and the steward of Potiphar's house 
to going to the prison and being in charge of the prison, that would be a downward movement in your career. I'm just thinking if you looked at at face value, like, hmm, trending the wrong way, right? Like you're 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 a manager, but you know you want to move into upper management, not lower management. And going from Potiphar's house, you would want to be trending toward Pharaoh's house. That's how you would go, right? Like, hey. How are you going to move up? Read a book on expanding your career, improving your career. You bought at John Wayne Airport, LAX, waiting in the bookstore there. You know, like, oh, you got some candy and a book that says how to be a, a manager on the move. It says the way to get to, to the castle of, of Pharaoh is to do this in the captain's guard, and you trend upward, and you'll be, eventually, you might, be, you might even be one of the people in Pharaoh's court. But then you're the victim, and you're falsely accused, and you end up in the prison, and now, hey, the book's not working. Like, this is not working. Like, this is not, the the way up is not down. But actually it is. With the Lord before honor comes humility. And this is upward movement in the call of God for how God works. Because Joseph is going to become the most important, powerful person in the world. And the prelude to being in Pharaoh's court is not the direct jump into Pharaoh's court. It's a descent into the prison's lowest depths. That's where he became confirmed to be the person he would be to lead all of Egypt, to save his brothers and his household, to save Egypt, all of Egypt, and to save other people from surrounding countries. It was in the prison where the final preparation took place. With God, promotion often is preceded by demotion. And that's what we learn. With God, promotion is often preceded by demotion. King David is another great example as well. And Esther and so on and so forth. There are so many examples. We should not be quick to consider what seems to be a downward movement that God has forsaken us not heard our prayer or answered our prayer or he somehow abandoned us and not with us or we've got his disfavor. Demotion with the Lord is often the prelude for great promotion from the Lord. And in one day, Joseph's going to go from the prison to the palace. And he'll be from being in charge with prisoners and understand how people in jail think to being in charge of the entire greatest kingdom on planet Earth, number two man with Pharaoh's signet ring. Which is pretty interesting to close tonight because... Judah exchanged his signet ring to have sex with a harlot. Joseph's lost everything that he had in his freedom from being betrayed by Judah. But in due time of just being obedient and faithful to the Lord, he's going to hold a signet ring that is the most powerful seal in the world. God's got a bigger picture and a bigger plan, and there's contrast. I want to make sure when we think of contrast that we're on the good side of the contrast and not to despise the day of small beginnings as God said to Jeremiah, but to just persevere, be faithful, and don't take perceived emotions as disfavor, but as part of the journey to make us who we're meant to be so we're properly prepared when we get to where we're going and all God has for us and what he wants to do through us.